Welcome to the Garden Basics with Farmer Fred podcast. If you're just a beginning gardener or you want good gardening information, well, you've come to the right spot. Do you want to help Mother Nature battle your garden pest problems? Well, give a listen and find out how. Jessica Walliser is the author of Plant Partners, a great book that has scientific proven strategies for incorporating different plants into your vegetable garden to fend off the bad guys by attracting the garden good guys. Also, how deep should you plant that new fruit tree? It's all on episode 78 of the Garden Basics with Farmer Fred podcast, and we'll do it all in under 30 minutes. Let's go. If you're familiar with the Farmer Fred Ramp blog page or anything we've been talking about here on the Garden Basics podcast for the last year, you know how I feel about attracting beneficial insects to your garden. It's such a great idea to bring in the good bugs to battle the bad bugs. You're going to use less chemicals. You're going to maintain a higher level of control. But you have to bring in what I like to call the good bug hotel. You have to build the good bug hotels to attract the beneficial insects. And if you think about that for a minute, that there are these plants that attract beneficials and there are a whole host of plants, maybe there are plants that attract the bad bugs. And, you know, maybe it's because we've been doing the same thing over and over and over again in our garden. When we plant our summer vegetable garden, we like to plant things neatly in a row. We have the tomatoes over here, the peppers over there, the squash over there and the flowers. Oh, they're probably ringing the yard. Well, what about instead of farming, we create a jungle? Now, when this is all over, I may have to change my name from Farmer Fred to Jungle Jim. I'm not sure. But what is explained in the book Plant Partners, a science-based companion planting strategies for the vegetable garden by Jessica Walliser? In Plant Partners, there is a lot of talk in this book about how to thwart the bad bugs by incorporating the Good Bug Hotels in your vegetable garden. We're talking with Jessica Walliser, author of Plant Partners. She's also the co-founder of SavvyGardening.com. And Jessica, it's a pleasure to talk to you about this because I, I really believe that beneficial insects attracting the good guys to your garden is a great way to battle pests. And the pests, though, will, will find the plants they want, but you can make it harder for them by incorporating something that you call in your book the appropriate, inappropriate landings theory. And I got to tell you, I'm in love with this. Well, thanks very much. And thanks for inviting me, Fred. I think I'm just going to take to calling you Jungle Jim from here on out for the rest of the interview. And you can call me Jungle Jessica. How's that? Oh, so there, you, there we go. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So um, thank you for inviting me. Everything you just said, completely true. You, you can call it a jungle if you want. I prefer to call it a polyculture where you're interplanting a bunch of plants together, right? Because jungle makes it sound like it's messy and all that stuff. But really the type of garden environment we want to create is actually quite beautiful. It's a mixed planting. It's a polyculture of all kinds of different crops. And you mentioned the appropriate inappropriate landings theory, and it's an important piece of scientific research that points to the value in having that kind of polyculture in your garden. And basically what this theory says is that, um, you know, a lot of pests that feed on our garden plants, they don't just necessarily find their host plant by a visual cue, by In other words, by sight, they also find it by landing on it. 
by landing on that plant. They have like basically receptors on their feet that allow them to recognize the plant that they're landing on as a host plant or not as a host plant for their egg laying behaviors, right? So if we have our cabbage all planted in a row together in the vegetable garden and that cabbage worm ca uh, moth is flying from plant to plant and landing every time on that plant, it needs to land a certain number of times before the egg laying behavior is triggered. If it's landing on a cabbage every single time, it's going to be able to trigger that egg laying much quicker, right? Much, much um, more rapidly. Whereas if you interplant your cabbages with a whole host of other plants, when that butterfly lands, each time it lands, it's probably going to be landing on a different plant. And so the required number of triggers isn't there and the egg laying behavior is reduced. And it's a really interesting um, research that took place in this. And the researchers that looked at this appropriate inappropriate landings theory found that 36% of the insects that were being studied, they were observed laying eggs on host plants when they were grown in bare soil. So 36% laid eggs when the plants were grown in bare soil. Only 7% laid eggs on host plants that were surrounded by other plants, by other companion plants. So creating that jungle environment or polyculture can lead to a reduction in pests. I never realized that bugs, including the bad bugs, taste with their feet. Yeah, not all bugs do. But yes, they also leave chemical messages behind when they walk on a plant. So a ladybug, for example, who knew? But ladybugs actually have stinky feet, so to speak. And when they walk around on a colony of aphids feeding on aphids, which is one of their favorite foods, they leave chemical footprints behind. And those footprints are picked up by a lot of the species of parasitic wasps that also use those aphids as host for their young. They lay an egg inside of the aphid. Um, and so if those parasitic wasps have picked up on the fact that a ladybug has walked there before, they're less likely to lay an egg in that aphid because they don't want their egg or their baby eaten by the ladybugs. So they'll fly off and go find another colony of, lady, of aphids to lay their eggs in. There are a whole host of plants, too, that attract the parasitic mini wasps. You have uh, yarrow, dill, marguerites, uh, coriander, cosmos. And cosmos really appears in a lot of uh, strategies for uh, attracting a whole host of beneficial insects because it's a member of the compositor Asteraceae family. The, the good guys really like those flat flowers because they don't have that long proboscis for probing. So they, they love the daisy-like flowers. So if you're going to intersperse with your vegetable garden, a lot of different uh, summertime annuals, what are some of your favorites? Well, in Plant Partners, I actually look at some of the cool research that's out there, the scientific research that looks at what types of flowering plants we can use to enhance that biological control or the bit good bugs that ha we have in our gardens. And so that dill family that you mentioned or carrot family, where everything has uh, the, the structure of a dill flower, if you think about that, which is actually an inflorescence. It's, it's hundreds, if not thousands of tiny flowers, all 
put together to create that umbrella-like structure. Each one of those tiny flowers needs to be pollinated by a tiny insect. So those are great for uh, attracting and supporting parasitic wasps in particular, but also ladybugs and lacewings and, and other good guys. So you've got the dill, the fennel, the cilantro, angelica, zizia, which is a great um, native perennial. So anything with that umbrella-shaped inflorescence is a good choice. Also for me, a lot of the flowering herbs in the mint family. So uh, things like oregano and basil. Uh, yeah, you don't have to plant regular mint, which will take over the garden, of course, but a lot of things that have that high essential oil content. And then also you need to allow them to flower because they will provide nectar as well. One herb that we like to grow out here in the cool season during the winter uh, here in the Western United States is cilantro. But cilantro starts a bolting when the weather starts warming up in April and May. And a lot of people, when they see the bolting, they'll rip out the plant. I like to keep cilantro in the yard because those flowers attract a whole host of beneficials, including hoverflies. So like you say, it really pays to let those plants go to flower. It does. And then you get coriander if you harvest the seeds. And if you don't harvest these seeds and you let them drop, at least here in Pennsylvania, we end up with those seeds just laying on the soil all winter long under the snow and they germinate first thing in the spring. And then I get a really wonderful early spring crop of the greens of cilantro. So, you know, lots of reasons to let them go. I really like your book, Plant Partners, Science-Based Companion Planting Strategies for the Vegetable Garden. When I first uh, saw the title of the book, I go, oh, here we go again, marigolds and nematodes. But you don't even talk about that. And I'm so glad you don't because uh, planting marigolds to control nematodes is a very iffy proposition. And what you have in here, and this is the impressive part of your book, is the bibliography, is the fact that everything you talk about in this book is backed with scientific research as outlined in the back of the book, many of it from peer-reviewed scientific journals. And uh, I, I recognize a lot of names in here uh, of, of people I know at UC Davis who do plant research. And of course, uh, what really sold me on your book was the fact that the foreword to the book is written by Jeff Gilman. Jeff Gilman, for those of you on Facebook, may know him as part of the Garden Professors and uh, an outstanding uh, garden writer in his own right. So, by having uh, Jeff Gilman in your book, that kind of sells it. Well, good. I hope so. Um, yeah, I mean, he he is such an iconic um, figure in the gardening community in terms of sort of dispelling garden myths and, um, you know, homemade remedies and all that kind of stuff. So I was thrilled that he decided he wanted to, to write the foreword for the book. It's a really important part of the book, as you mentioned. One of my favorite chapters in the book has to do with uh, trapping crops. And one pest that I think is probably universal in the United States in the backyard garden are aphids. What are some strategies for companion planting to control aphids? So for me, aphids are one of those pests that are, as you mentioned, that are everywhere. But there's also beneficial insects that eat them. 
everywhere, right? Yes. So, I mean, that's the whole idea of this, right, isn't it? Yeah. Right, right. I mean, they are the prey, right? So they are the gazelles and the, you know, the ladybugs and <laughs> lace wings and parasitic wasps and hoverflies, you know, they are the lions, right? So, so what we want to do is we want to, we want to actually, I like to encourage the aphids in my garden because I know if I have aphids, I'm going to have a lot of good bugs around that can also in turn help me control many other pests that might be more challenging to control. So if you if you have aphids in your garden consistently, there are some plants that you should plant to support the, the biological control. And that number one for me is uh, sweet alyssum. And that's because sweet alyssum is very attractive to the hoverflies uh, whose larva feeds on aphids. And so they are number one. And you see that I know a lot of times in California, the lettuce farmers will interplant with um, sweet alyssum to help attract those those good bugs. So that's one of the easiest ones that you can do. One of the easiest plant partnerships that you can choose to help control those aphids. In today's show notes, I'll have a link to one farmer, Fred Rant, that gets uh, many views. It's called Plants That Attract Beneficial Insects. And in that post, I have pictures of the beneficial insects, but not just the adult, but also the baby stage and the teenage stage. And like you mentioned, the hoverfly and the hoverfly teenage stage might be mistaken for a caterpillar, uh, really the telltale sign of this green uh, uh, caterpillar-like critter that you know it's a hoverfly it has sort of a cream or yellow colored streak down its back so before you start killing any bugs identify the bug to make sure it isn't a good guy that is true that is true and we you know our hoverflies that we have here and i don't know that you know, if you perhaps have different species out there, but most of our hoverfly larvae that we have here in the eastern U.S. sort of almost look like slug-like. They're kind of mm. clear. They're very, very tiny. They're, you know, not not much bigger than the aphids themselves. And they sort of crawl around on the plants around the aphids. And they're really fascinating. They're tapered at one end. And the end that they're tapered at is their head end. And they kind of swing their head. They don't have eyes. So they swing their head back and forth as they crawl over the plant until they bump into an aphid. And then, of course, they grab it and have it for lunch. Uh, So it's really cool once you learn how to identify all these good bugs in all their different life stages, as you mentioned. And then you can actually go out into your garden and watch them work. And that is the coolest thing. Like I am the nerd that is out there in my garden, you know, sitting on my, you know, rear in the garden, watching at my plants and staring at them. And I find an aphid colony and I'm so excited because I can't wait to see what good bugs I can find on it just when I stop and spend a couple minutes taking a look. One of the joys of being a tomato gardener is seeing that tomato worm with what looked like little white cotton Q-tips on its back because you know then it has been parasitized. It is. It's so thrilling when we see that in our garden, isn't it? And a lot of people think that those are eggs of a parasitic wasp. Like they're aware that it's a good bug, but they're not quite sure what's going on. But actually, when you see those little white they look like little grains of rice hanging off the back of that tomato or tobacco hornworm. You're actually seeing the pupil case. So you're seeing um, the, the, uh, the, the act of the larval wasp pupating into an adult wasp outside of the body of that hornworm. And what's really cool is if you can catch what I have a couple pictures of um, in my various books is 
the larva kind of oozing out of the skin of the hornworm because they spend their entire entire larval life stage inside the body of that hornworm. And then when they're ready to pupate, they ooze out through the skin, spin those external cocoons, and then pupate there. And if you're really lucky, you can actually catch the adult wasp sort of chewing a round hole in the top of that pupil case and popping it off and then flying off to go do it all over again. That is also the telltale sign of a dead aphid. If you uh, turn over a, a leaf of uh, usually it's a member of the squash family out here and you see a lot of brown or black specks. If you look really, really closely, they're probably dead aphids. And you may notice that brown or black circle on their back where they've been parasitized. Yeah, I always say they look, a regular aphid is lean and mean, a parasitized aphid is fat and sassy. So they're they're plump and they're round and they're often a brown or dark gray and when you and they look different than healthy aphids and kind of their 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 uh, exoskeleton gets swollen and dry and then yeah, when the adult aphidious wasp is ready to emerge, they chew what is a perfectly round hole in the back of that aphid mummy and they pop the top off like a manhole cover and they emerge and again fly off to do it all over again it's just amazing i have a question about plant choices to incorporate in your vegetable garden we, we've talked about um, many varieties of uh, especially like i said the composite family the asteraceae family is there a difference between planting an heirloom variety versus a hybrid variety are the garden good guys more attracted to heirloom varieties of these flowers? That's an interesting uh, the question that you bring out. And I think the jury in many ways is still out on this. But there's a lot of research going on in particular with pollinators where they're looking at does does the strict native species of a plant is it you know does it support more pollinators than say a cultivar a more more modern cultivar of that plant does you know is there something about the nectar composition that changes through that breeding process and you know there's re ongoing research about this i think most of the preliminary research points to the fact that, you know, yes, cultivars can support just as many pollinators and a diversity of pollinators as the straight species does, but they haven't looked at nectar fitness yet. You know, is it is it McDonald's? Does it become McDonald's nectar or is it Whole Foods nectar, right? So, <laughs> so does the nutrient content of that nectar change through that plant breeding? I mean, there's so many questions. And as far as I know, there's not much current research that takes all of that and looks at it in terms of predatory beneficial insects. So they're looking at pollinators, but maybe they aren't necessarily looking at the ladybug who is also drinking that nectar and eating that pollen. So it's very complex. It's very complicated. And I'm not sure we're going to have clear answers soon. From my own personal standpoint, if I have a choice, um, I try to include as many you know native plants in my garden as possible. Um, I do have cultivars in my garden as well, but I do try to avoid plants that have, a, you know, just an incredible amount of petals, you know, like the, the double varieties, often because their nectaries can be really buried beneath all those petals uh, and inaccessible to a lot of these smaller beneficial insects. So I try to avoid those. They're great for human eyes, but I don't think they're quite so good for the insects. Very good point there. Yeah, it, I haven't used 
chemicals to control insects in my yard in years just because of the plants that are in the yard along with the vegetables. And permanent plantings are very important, too, to help you control uh, the pests. You talk about this in your book. So let's talk a, a minute or two about the bigger good guys, the birds, and what they require. You talk in the book about hedgerows, which if you have a good-sized piece of property, hedgerows, a, a permanent woody vegetation, is very important for attracting a permanency in your garden for the presence of birds, especially evergreen shrubs that produce berries. It's true. It's true. And not only for those birds, but also again for those good bugs and those pollinators. You know, they need a place to take shelter in the winter. They need um, a place for egg laying. So something like an elderberry bush, which is a hollow stemmed shrub, uh, if you include those in your hedgerows, I mean, that's a winner because you've got the berries for the birds. You've got the hollow stems, which are pollinators and many of our beta uh, beneficial insects will take shelter in for the winter. Um, you've got you know, habitat in their vase-like structure for even for rabbits, right? And and birds that take shelter in the winter and nesting uh, in those plants as well. So some of the native viburnums are really good uh, for the same number of things. So having a hedgerow, having permanent established plantings, whether they are shrubs or perennials or a mixture of both is really important to so many creatures and and so many levels of the ecosystem of the garden. You mentioned a, a piece of research that I'm very familiar with. Uh, the folks at UC Davis have uh, studied hedgerows at this one ranch outside Davis called the Oakdale Ranch, where they've constructed hedgerows and studied how many beneficial insects, how many uh, good predators they attract. And like you were pointing out, it's really very much more effective if you use native plants. Exactly. And, you know, again, I think the sad part is in this day and age, beggars can't be choosers, right? <laughs> I mean, I just want people to stop planting lawn and start planting flowers and, you know, blooming plants and shrubs and trees and, you know, some things with structure. I want them to start there. But then obviously, we all know that there's so many more benefits to be gained by using plants that are native to your region. There's a, a greater level of value in them. And there's a lot of research pointing to that, especially again, in terms of uh, caterpillars like butterfly caterpillars, moth caterpillars. Yeah, they need plants that they co-evolved with over millennia to support their caterpillars. There is no substitute for those guys, right? There's no option. There's no plan B. That's the only plant they can use um, for egg laying. So um, I think doing some research, looking into the plants that are suitable for hedgerows wherever you live in the country is really, really valuable to do. I think every state has uh, some sort of organization or online presence that discusses the native plants for each state here in California. It's the California Native Plant Society. CNPS.org is their website, and they have a lot of good websites that can uh, help you ascertain which are the best uh, native plants to use for your very particular area, in this case, of California. And I imagine it's like that uh, throughout uh, the United States. Uh, every state has native plants, and they work. What I like is we're reinforcing that old bumper sticker that says Mother Nature abhors a monoculture. <laughs> Indeed, diversity equals stability is my favorite one. I walked into a, a classroom one time to uh, to teach a class at a, at a university, and it, it was actually written on the blackboard. And it diversity equals stability. And I and I took a picture of that blackboard, and I use it on a lot of my presentations because it's an important and valuable message for gardeners, um, no matter what kind of garden you grow, but in particular in the vegetable garden. The more 
you treat your garden like an ecosystem with many layers of interacting plants, the better, more stable of an environment it will be. The less pest pressure, the less disease pressure you'll have, the healthier soil that you'll have, the healthier plants that you'll be able to grow. That diversity is really key. And, you know, companion planting is actually planting for diversity, right? It's choosing to partner certain plants together for a benefit. But in the end, what you're doing is you're creating that polyculture. You're creating more diversity, which leads to a better, more stable environment. The name of the book, Plant Partners, Science-Based Companion Planting Strategies for the Vegetable Garden. It's by Jessica Walliser. She's also the co-founder of SavvyGardening.com. Jessica, we learned a lot today. Thanks so much for giving us some great advice about plant partners. Thank you very much for inviting me, and I look forward to talking with you again. The Garden Basics with Farmer Fred podcast has a lot of information posted at each episode transcripts, links to any products or books or websites mentioned during the show, and other helpful links for even more information. Plus, you can listen to just the portions of the show that interest you. It's been divided into easily accessible chapters. Plus, you'll find more information about how to get in touch with us. Maybe you could leave an audio question without making a phone call. You can do that at SpeakPipe. That's SpeakPipe.com. It's easy. Give it a try. And you just might hear your voice on the Garden Basics podcast. If you're listening to us via Apple Podcasts, put your question in the ratings and reviews section. You can always text us the question and pictures or use your voice to leave a question at 916-292-8964. That's 916-292-8964. You can always use the good old email, fred at farmerfred.com. That's fred at farmerfred.com. And when you leave a question, be sure to tell us where you're from. That will help us greatly to accurately answer your garden questions, because as you know, all gardening is local. In the show notes, you'll find links to our social media outlets as well, where you can leave questions or make comments. Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube. And there's a link to the FarmerFred.com website. And thanks for listening. Here's a quick tip on how to plant a fruit tree from Ed Livo from tomorrowsharvest.com. Many people are guilty of planting trees too deeply and you want to, uh, when you plant a fruit tree, you want to be able to see that bud union sticking up maybe an inch or two above the soil line after you plant it. Yep, that's a fact. And the bud union, of course, is where the tree has been budded onto the rootstock. Uh, probably a simple way to do that when you're planting a bare root tree is to just say the topmost root, you know, if you go, say, three to four inches above that, that's typically a safe place to have your soil line. Um, and if you're planting, of course, a tree in a container, then I always recommend don't plant any deeper than the soil line that exists in the container uh, when you purchase it. Garden Basics comes out every Tuesday and Friday, and it's available just about anywhere podcasts are handed out. And that includes Apple Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Spotify, Stitcher, and Google Podcasts. And for Northern California gardeners, the Green Acres Garden Podcast with Farmer Fred. It's also available wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you for listening, subscribing, and leaving comments. We appreciate it.